0: section four of the crusades by george william cox this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter two the council of clermont part two by these words the war now proclaimed against the turks received the name which has become a general title for all wars or hostile undertakings carried on in the name of religion thousands hastened at once to put on the badge and so to take their place among the ranks of the crusaders the rival claims of the antipope withheld urban himself from taking the pledge to which he was clamorously invited and worldly prudence alone may have suggested the wisdom of standing aloof from a conflict in which disaster to a roman pontiff would certainly be regarded as a visible sign of the divine displeasure of the clergy the first to assume the cross was Ademar, bishop of puy and as his reward he received the powers and dignity of papal legate at the head of the laity raymond count of toulouse duke of narbonne and marquis of provence promised through his ambassadors to be ready by the feast of the assumption august fifteenth next following the council the day fixed for the departure of the crusading hosts for Constantinople. Thus was the die cast for a venture which, in the eye of a keen-sighted general or a far-seeing statesman, should have boded little good, but which held out irresistible attractions for the great mass of the people, attractions which continued to draw hundreds and thousands still to the unknown and mysterious East, when a long series of disasters had proved That the journey to Jerusalem was, in all likelihood, a journey to the grave. For the really sincere and devout, whose lives had been passed without reproach, and who could await the future with a clear conscience, there was the deep sense of binding duty, the yearning to be brought nearer, whether on earth or in heaven, to the master whom they loved. For the feudal chieftain, there was the fierce pastime of war which formed the main occupation and perhaps the only delight of his life with the wild excitement produced by the thought that the indulgence of his passions had now become a solemn act of religion there was also the prospect of vast and permanent conquest and the duke or count who left a fair domain behind him might look forward to the chance of winning a realm as splendid as that which robert guiscard and his normans had won in apulia and sicily In ten fifty eight and ten fifty nine for the common herd and those whom gross living had rendered moral cowards there was the offer of a method by which they might wipe out their guilt without changing their character and disposition not a few might be caught by the philosophy of the abbot guibert who boldly drew a parallel between the crusades and holy orders or monachism that height of perfection which ecclesiastics might reach in their own sphere was now attainable by laymen through an enterprise in which their usual license and habits of life would win them the favor of god not less than the most unsparing austerity of the monk or the priest. It was, in short, a new mode of salvation, and they who were hurrying along the broad road to destruction now found that the taking of a vow converted it, into the narrow and rugged path to heaven. Nor was the number few of those for whom this convenient arrangement was combined with some solid temporal advantages. The cross on the breast or shoulder, set free from the clutches of his lord, the burgher or the peasant attached to the soil, opened the prison doors for malefactors of every kind, released the debtor from obligation of paying interest on his debts while he wore the sacred badge, and placed him beyond the reach of creditors. Lastly, the episode of a crusade might be, for the priest, a pleasant interruption to the dull routine of parochial work, to the monk an agreeable change from the wearisome monotony of his conventual life the usurer and the creditor might fancy himself to be somewhat hardly treated, yet they were amongst the few to whom the crazy enterprise, crazy not from the impracticability of its objects, but from the way in which these were followed, brought a solid benefit. The unthinking throng might rush off to Palestine without making the least preparation for their journey or their maintenance, in the blind faith that they would be fed and clothed, like the fowls of the air or the lilies of the field. But for those who could judge more soberly, and for those who were not willing to forego their luxuries or their pleasures, there was the need of providing a store of the precious metals, by means of which alone their wishes could be gratified. The duke, who had to maintain a vast and brilliant retinue, was compelled to mortgage his dominions, and thus for the sum of ten thousand marks, Wrung from the lower orders in the English state, William Rufus obtained from his brother Robert the government of his dukedom for five years, and took care that the prize so won should not slip again from his grasp. Nobles and knights setting off on the crusade all wished to sell land, all wished to buy arms and horses. The arms and horses, therefore, became ruinously dear, the lands ridiculously cheap it is easy to see that the prudent trader the cautious merchant the landowner whose eye was fixed on the main chance would stand at an enormous advantage but if these were gainers the gains of the pope and the sacerdotal army of which he was the chief were greater still if the proclamation of the crusader rendered all private warfare a treason against christendom if it set free even the noble from the power of the overlord and made the latter incapable of summoning his vassal to his standard if the crusader as the soldier of the church was released from every other obligation these tremendous changes had been wrought wholly by the power of the pope and his hierarchy in placing the dominions of all crusading princes under the protection of the church the council of clermont may have provided for those chiefs a most inadequate defence but it placed the pope on a level above all earthly princes and the power which withheld the arm of the creditor from falling upon his debtor became a vast dispensing authority the possession of which would have delighted the heart and realized the highest longings of hildebrand urban did not go to palestine but even there he was present in the person of his legate Adhemar, and thus claimed the guidance of a war sanctified by his blessing and undertaken in the cause of the church. The vows of the crusader were taken, again, by many who had no present intention of fulfilling them. Sickness or misfortune or qualms of conscience might lead them to assume the fatal sign. But from that moment, until they set off on their journey they put themselves in the power of the Pope, who sometimes used with cruel effect the hold thus obtained over emperors and kings. Kings, it is true, reaped no small benefit from the impulse which drove their vassals to the holy sepulchre, and the absorption of the smaller into the larger fiefs, and of these again into the royal domain, tended to that extension of the sovereign power which ultimately broke up the feudal system, but these results were far distant. The immediate harvest was gathered by the Pope. Thus far he had appeared by his representatives in general or local councils. By these he had interfered in the settlement of disputes. Through these he had negotiated with princes. But the preaching of the Crusades furnished a reason or a pretext for sending his legates into every land. Their primary business was to stir up the hearts of the faithful, or to keep them up to fever heat. But scarcely less important was the task of collecting money for the support of the crusading armies. On the clergy, whether secular or regular, and on the monastic orders, the Pope had a claim which they dared not to call into question, and the subsidies exacted or enjoined for this purpose were paid with a real or a feigned cheerfulness to the laity the prayer for voluntary alms assumed practically the form of a demand refusal would imply lukewarmness in the faith if not positive heresy and the imputation could not be incurred without peril of temporal or even of eternal ruin both for the clergy and the laity the charge for a special and temporary purpose became a permanent tax the proceeds of which the Pope might expend on any objects, and in the theory of the time he could spend them on none which were not good. But for the impost thus laid upon them, the clergy had a compensation which by the nature of the case could not be enjoyed by the laity. If a bishop put on the cross, he might lay a burden on his estates, but he could not alienate them, as his right over them ceased with his death. But in point of fact, it was chiefly the prelates and the monastic houses that became guardians or mortgagees of lands belonging to men who had betaken themselves to the holy land. The Jews who amassed immense profits on their loans to needy crusaders had nothing to do with the cultivation of the soil and in most countries could not be owners of it. But the church was everywhere ready with its protection and its money, nor were there wanting enthusiasts who, as they fixed the blood-red cross on their garment, gave up all their lands and worldly goods to the spiritual body, whose prayers they regarded as a more than sufficient recompense. Even they who left the church merely the guardian of their estates in their absence might die in the east, and if they died without heirs, the guardians became absolute owners. If they came back, Toil and disappointment had often so worn them down that they took refuge in a cloister and handed over to the fraternity whatever of their property might still remain to them. The vast gains thus accruing were all over and beyond the accumulations amassed from the bequests of ordinary or extraordinary penitents on their deathbeds or the gifts of enthusiastic devotees during their lifetime, and all the land so gained to the church was withdrawn from the jurisdiction of the sovereign who professed to rule the country and thus formed a kingdom within a kingdom the spiritual domain threatening constantly to absorb that of the secular monarch a collision followed by violent and iniquitous spoliation became inevitable and when the time was come the great fabric of ecclesiastical wealth was plundered and demolished In the enterprise to which latin christendom thus stood committed the several nations or countries of europe took very equal parts or rather no nation as such took any part in it at all and in this fact we have the explanation of that want of coherent action and even decent or average generalship which is commonly seen in national undertakings for the crusade there was no attempt at a commissariat no care for a base of supplies and the crusading hosts were a collection of individual adventurers who either went without making any provisions for their journey or provided for their own needs and those of their followers from their own resources. The number of these adventurers were naturally determined by the political conditions of the country from which they came. In Italy, the struggle between the Pope and the anti Pope went far towards chilling enthusiasm and the recruits for the crusading army came chiefly from the normans who had followed robert guiscard to the sunny southern lands the spaniards were busy with the crusade nearer home and were already pushing back to the south the mohammedan dominion which had once threatened to pass the barriers of the pyrenees and carry the crescent to the shores of the baltic sea about ten years before the council of clermont in 1085 the moslem dynasty of toledo had been expelled by alfonso king of galicia the kingdom of cordova had fallen twenty years earlier in 1065 and while peter the hermit was hurrying hither and thither through the countries of northern europe the christians of spain were winning victories in mercia and the land was ringing with the exploits of the dauntless Rui diaz de bivar by the germans the summons to the rescue of the holy sepulchre was received with comparative coldness the partisans of emperors who had been humbled to the dust by the predecessors of urban if not by himself were not vehemently eager to obey it the bishops of salzburg passau and Strasbourg, the aged duke guelph of bavaria had undertaken the toilsome and perilous journey Not one of them saw their homes again, and their death in the distant east was not regarded by their countrymen as an encouragement to follow their example. In England, the English were too much weighted down by the miseries of the conquest, the Normans too much occupied in strengthening their position, and the king, William the Red, more ready to take advantage of the needs of his brother Robert than to incur any risks of his own. The great movement, came from the lands extending from the Scheldt to the Pyrenees. Franks and Normans alike made ready with impetuous haste for the great adventure, and tens of thousands, who could not wait for the formation of something like a regular army, hurried away, under leaders as frantic as themselves, to their inevitable doom. End of section 4